Shakespeare, and it's an honor to be uh, preaching this morning uh, and to be closing our uh, family series. It's been been quite a while since I've had the opportunity to preach, and so I'm thankful for it. The title of our family series is I Am Not My Own, which is also the title of my sermon this morning. Today is also Youth Sunday, uh, so each week during the family series we have uh, had something of a theme, and so this week is uh, is focused on the youth, though I would say to all of you that that is not your signal to, uh, to check out, um, because this sermon is certainly fitting for all of us, but I am also excited to be uh, preaching on Youth Sunday um, about a year or so ago, I really don't know how long ago it was, but I started uh, working with the youth. Um, since I was a young teenager, I knew that the Lord was calling me to ministry. Uh, I obviously did not know what that would look like, and I definitely never envisioned that it would look like what it looks like, uh, though I'm very thankful that it looks this way. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe he wants me to be, I don't know, I thought of all kinds of different things that maybe God wanted me to be in ministry. But the one thing that I never, ever thought that he wanted me to be was a youth pastor. <clears throat> you know, some people, they got that clear call, man. They're like, um, nothing against the teenagers. It just wasn't anything that um, I was ever, ever interested in or felt compelled to do. And yet God in his providence uh, now has me week after week in there with the with the young people of our church, and it's awesome, right? Yeah, stones over here, yes. Uh, it really, really is a is a genuine privilege. And part of the reason that I uh, that I agreed to do that was, or I really I felt compelled to do that was because of the burden that I feel for our young people today. And I don't think that that will come as a, a shock um, to any of you. I think we all, as adults, feel this weight of what our young people are facing, and frankly, in a way that we know, no offense to them, but that they can't even fully understand what they're facing. Um, I think that they face challenges that, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if they're new in all of humanity, but they certainly are new to us in, in, in all of the generations that currently exist, the challenges that they're going to face, and certainly in the history of the United States. And I feel strongly, and I say this to all of you here, I feel strongly that a part of what the Lord is calling us to as believers, this is clear from Scripture, is to build up and prepare the next generation. From the Old Testament through the end of the Bible, that is a clear mandate. And if there was ever a time where our young people needed adults, believers, investing in them, building intentional gospel relationships with them, loving them, discipling them, pouring the word into them, it is this generation. And so I am uh, thankful that the Lord has placed this opportunity before me to, to spend each week with them And I pray that um, to the extent that he would move any of you in that direction, that you would not tarry in pouring into them. So, um, our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 19 and 20. 
And so if I could please ask you to stand briefly as we honor the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. We say this together. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So I told, oh yeah, told you it's been a while. Any of our kids, it's not kids Sunday. You guys get to go to your class. Thank you, Brad. Sorry about that. The kids are like, whoo <laughs> Man. Um, as are the parents. So I told Troy before the service that uh, I may call an audible right in the, in the middle of my sermon, and I'm going to. So uh, I tried to set it up like Brad. He does such a good job with his with his opening illustrations and then rolling it in at the end and tying it up like a movie, you know. Uh, sincerely. Um, but I tried, and I'm just not happy with it. And so I'm going to bail <laughs> right here in front of you on my illustration. Uh, it was about Lord of the Rings. Um, and I just think it's a little trite. Um, plus, everyone out of the generosity and kindness of their heart and concern for me, of course, has made jokes about how long it takes me to preach. And uh, somebody said this morning that they had packed a lunch. Uh, and so, I'm skipping it, Troy. So we're going to get right to the main question of the morning. A missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm sure you're all familiar with that statement, but I'm going to say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this is the question that is before us this morning. And I can make you a guarantee. That's not a word that I use lightly, but I can make you a guarantee that your answer to this question will fundamentally change your life, whether you walked into this room knowing what you believe or whether you have been a Christian since you were a child. And that question is, are you willing to give up what you do not even have to gain what no one can ever take from you? Are you willing to give up what you do not even have to gain what no one can ever take from you? So a little background on our, our text. Uh, Corinth, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, a church that he had planted sometime in the past. The city of Corinth would have been very similar in many ways to uh, many of the cities in America today. Uh, it was a melting pot. A lot of businesses there, a lot of entrepreneurs there. Certainly there was wealth there. That would mean there were classes there and, you know, poor people and rich people. 
as a melting pot, it was also a place of lots of new ideas, cutting-edge ideas. We can even see, based on, uh, even in chapter 6, though we're not going to spend any time on it this morning, that there was a robust legal system in Corinth as one of the problems they were dealing with was church members suing one another, of all things. It was also a very pagan and hedonistic culture. It was a city with what seemed to be some pretty extreme sexual perversions, and deviances that would make even modern Americans blush. And so somehow, some of these issues had made their way into the church. And so Paul is addressing a couple of things. He's addressing some reports that he received from a family, which you can see in chapter 1, and then some questions that he had gotten from church members. And he is... He is addressing these these issues of, of sin and these sexual practices that have, have made their way into the church. Um, and there's this, there's this sort of duality in their time uh, where they, they viewed the body and the soul as separate. And so it seems that maybe uh, part of what was going on is they were concerned about the soul as early Christians. But they weren't super clear how that related to the body. And so maybe I can do with my body as I please as long as I take care of my soul over here. And that confusion makes its way into the body of Christ. And the body of Christ starts to use their bodies in ways that are not honoring to God. And so a lot of what Paul is, or specifically what Paul is addressing, especially in our text this morning, is this. He's talking specifically about our bodies and how they are to be used and not confused. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's the beginning of our text, and he ends with, glorify God with your body. And so, this brings us to our first point this morning, which is, You were bought with a price. And I'm going to be honest with you, transparent. I have been shook by this passage this week. Um, I know these verses. I know these concepts. I've been a pastor for over a decade. I have theological training and education. I get to hang out with other pastors. My grandfather was a pastor, my dad was a minister of a strong Christian pedigree, you may say. But for whatever reason, when I started to work on this text, it really brought up some deep defenses, some, like, some things that sort of surprised me, because my point to you is, I know this. And as I've written this sermon this week, a lot of times I've thought, I feel like they all know this. But I also kept running up against this wall of defenses against these truths, right? Like, bought with a price, not my own, right? Um, and so I just want you to know that, and a lot of what's happening in this sermon this morning is, in the, in specifically the way that I laid it out, is the way that I had to work through it myself to get to peace with this passage 
This is why I said a minute ago that like your answer to this question this morning will fundamentally change your life in the most significant way that it can be changed. My initial response to this idea was to bristle and put up defenses and start to like justify all of these things about what this passage must mean and how it, how it applies to me. Any of you who know me know that I do not like to be told what to do. I am fiercely independent uh, in like a very primal way. And I, I, I'm fully aware I'm not the only person who is, is like that. Um, many of us in this room have, you know, don't like to be told what to do, right? Yeah. Allison just elbowed him because it's so true, right? But none of us like to be, n- none of us like to be controlled or told what to do. Frankly, it's the reason that this conversation is worth having because this is a struggle for all of us. This is a struggle since the garden. We, we want to be autonomous. We want to be independent. We want to be free to do as we please. And so the um, finality of what these verses are saying, if you are willing to really look at what they're saying, are difficult. That was my experience anyway. And so what I've sort of done is I've set this up um, so that I could sort of get through it in sort of like a if this, then that structure, if you will. So if this is true, then this must also be true, right? And so in so doing, I've sort of flipped the, the text. And I'm starting backwards and working my way back up. So Paul begins with the sentence, you were bought. He could have taken a whole lot of approaches to this, right? He could have said, you didn't ask to be created. You didn't, you didn't ask for your life. It was given to you. He could have emphasized our dependence on God for all things, for, our, for breath, for, for our food, etc. But he didn't. He started with, you were bought. Why? I think there's a couple of things. One, I think... Paul is speaking directly to the church, to those who identify as followers of Christ. <clears throat> These are not neutral words. They, they demand a response, as I've already said. Um, had he said any of those other things, it would have been a universal sort of thing, right? He could have said, you didn't ask for your life. You were created. Clearly, you're not independent or autonomous. And it would have applied to everyone. But he's speaking specifically to those who claim the name of Christ. And this is important. This is to those of us in this room who claim the name of Christ. And and this is why I believe he chose and started with the words, you were bought. And secondly, if that is true, then what Paul is urging is a radical, radical shift in our understanding of life and its purpose. Certainly for the Corinthians. I mean, again, we have to remember how new all of this was at that time. The world had literally just been flipped upside down with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And so I can't imagine, you know, you can't imagine what that would have been like. But here we are 2,000 years later with the same exact struggle. And so Paul is, Paul is not merely asking us to behave differently. He's calling us to reorient our entire existence. So when he writes, you were bought, he's making a very profound statement. If you're a Christian, acknowledging this means recognizing that you've been purchased. And this has staggering implications. It suggests that you were for sale. Owned by someone else already. You cannot be sold if you are not owned. And you cannot be for sale if you are not owned. So it shatters right out of the gate any illusion of any autonomy that you may thought may have thought that you had, right? Like, well, well, I was free and then I got bought. No. No, you were already for sale. Make sense? So if you were bought, you were never truly your own to begin with. It raises a question that I know many of us know the answer to, but I have to ask it, which is, well, bought from what? From whom? So we will confront the uncomfortable truth that we are not and have never been free. From the moment Adam and Eve defied God in the Garden of Eden, humanity became enslaved. We may cherish the illusion of freedom, independence, and autonomy, but the Bible dispels this myth many times over. I'm saying... Like, again, I may say this too many times this morning. I'll try not to. But I think I've worked real hard to sort of slide around those passages. Romans 6, 16 through 18 lays this quite bare. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. You were slaves and you are now a slave. So in essence, we are all slaves, either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And if you identify as a follower of Christ, You've been purchased out of one form of slavery and into another more glorious one. And clearly, this term slave is uncomfortable. It evokes um, a sense of of degradation. And again, it, it attacks this sense of autonomy and and freedom and liberty, much of which I think we can all agree is is strongly argued for in even in, in Christianity for freedom. Christ has set you free, right? We have Christian liberty, lots of terms that we sort of throw around that I'm not sure that we all, and I'm speaking for myself, always think through 
clearly. And so, again, I, I know that the slave language is throughout Scripture, but, but facing it this directly um, feels a bit degrading, if you will. So, like, I don't know if I'm super great with the fact that I've been purchased from one form of slavery to another only to then lose any illusion of freedom that I thought I had. But this is where the second part of Paul's statement comes in. You were bought at a price. And this just isn't any price. It is an incomprehensible price. I don't care how hard you reflect on it. You cannot get your mind around the price that was paid to purchase your slavery. How can a slave, especially one enslaved to rebellion, remember we were slaves to sin on a path for destruction. How can a slave, especially one enslaved to rebellion, selfishness, and greed, have any value? Right? So we were slaves, but in terms of slaves, we weren't good slaves. Like, I tried to think about a slave trade, right? And, like, what would this be like? Envision this horrible reality of people being bought and sold. And I'm guessing if you're one of the people that would do such a thing, you're looking for the good ones. That's not what we were. We were slaves to selfishness and greed, and we were on a path for destruction. Yet the price that was paid for your freedom was not silver and gold, but the blood of Jesus Christ. The youth are studying Revelation right now. It was their choice. <clears throat> but it's been great. It's, it's super fun, really. But it wasn't my choice. <clears throat> and as I was thinking about this cost, the, like being purchased with the blood of Christ, and trying to just a little tiny bit that my fractured brain can even comprehend, get my mind around that value, this incomprehensible value. Um, Revelation 5 comes to mind. Revelation 5 is the scene, we talked about it this morning actually in review, about it's the scene where they're standing before the throne, and there's, there's, there's the 24 elders, and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels, and they're trying to figure out who's gonna, who can open the scroll. You remember the scene? And the, the line of the tribe of Judah and the, the lamb as though he was slain. And it occurred to me in that scene, in all of the loftiness and incomprehensible beauty of that, all the things that they could sing a song about, all the things that they have seen and then they know before the throne of God. <clears throat> and their song is, For you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Your redemption is so extraordinary. The cost that was paid for you and for me was so extraordinary that it is the anthem that is sang before the throne of God in heaven. 
It's incredible. Being a slave to God is unlike any earthly servitude. You weren't bought with perishable things, but with a currency that transcends time and space. If you are in Christ, understand this, you were bought at an immeasurable price. Point two, you are not your own. Someone once said, there is no ruler so tyrannical as self. And he that is his own master has a fool and a tyrant for a lord. Take that to mean you don't want to be in control of yourself. Understanding that the autonomy and independence we desire or seek after are just illusions anyway, I found this week, goes a long way in helping me accept this second point, because this is where I really struggled, that I'm not my own, not sort of as free as maybe I think that I am. While it wasn't the approach that Paul took, it doesn't make it any less true by that I mean, we didn't, we didn't ask to be created. Our life was a gift. We didn't have anything to do with it. And so it is a bit bizarre that as we grow, we begin to believe that we somehow should have this authority over all these things when we had nothing to do with any of it and frankly have very, very little to do with the fact that it gets sustained. Right? Like your autonomic nervous system. Right? I got a client that works with ATP. The, I shouldn't even talk about it because I don't even know. Right? But it's like the energy <laughs> currency of the cell or something. Right? And if you didn't have it for like a quarter of a second, you would just collapse and die. And there's a million things like that that are part of the immaculate design of God's creation that sustain us, right? Every little thing, the tilt of the earth, the size of the moon, all it's on and on and on and on that list could go. And yet somehow I am prideful enough to think that I should have some measure of autonomy in all of this. I had the youth in mind as I... I, worked on this part, but this really is so true for all of us. Contrary to our belief in autonomy, our motivations and choices are often shaped by external influences and a yearning for social acceptance, right? So even though we, we want to be our own captains, so much of what we're steering toward is what other people are pointing us toward telling us where we should go, seeking that, that confirmation, that acceptance. So whether you're stepping into the sixth grade this year or celebrating your fifth year of motherhood or whether you mark 25 years at your job, it is a quest for acceptance that often drives all of us. It influences not just our appearance, but our worldviews, our political stances, our societal beliefs. Remember what Romans 6 said a second ago? You become slaves to the one that you obey. And in this context then, outside of all of this, we are slaves to our own desires for belonging and acceptance. And lest 
I need any evidence. The rise of social media, I think, demonstrates this, right? We all have this, like, it's not even a love-hate relationship. Like, I have never really thought about how I would describe the relationship that I think we all have with social media. We'll go with love-hate for now. But it's like disgust and curiosity or something mixed together. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's built on this concept. And look at, the, look at the rise of anxiety. Look at the rise of depression. They've always been there. But look at the, it's like, a, it's like if you charted it, it's a hockey stick. It's just exponential growth in, in anxiety and depression and confusion. The pursuit of self-discovery and acceptance often leads to a dead end of disillusionment and rejection. When it comes to the essence of who you truly are, you don't want to be your own master. The challenges that we face are far too complicated, whether we want to admit it or not. Here's an example. It's like a ship without a captain. Imagine a big seaworthy vessel. It appears seaworthy. It's designed for the ocean. Fully equipped. It floats. It's got sails. But if you push it away from the dock and just let it go, it is at the mercy of every storm and wind. The sea will do nothing but try to destroy that ship. And if it doesn't get it in its depths, it will send it to the shallow waters and crash it against the rocks. But one way or the other, if you let that ship with no captain, us leading ourselves, by the way, that ship will be destroyed or a sheep, a sheep without a shepherd. It's a better example. Got everything he needs, right? You can imagine him on the hillside, grass all around, Still waters in the valley below, nice breeze. The sheep's fine. He's got everything he wants. He can walk. He can eat. He has no idea that he won't make it through the night. Predators all around, the elements. He's too stupid to walk down to the water and get drink. (laughs) And fall off of a cliff. That's us. Like, really? (laughs) I mean, it's hard truth, but, like, what the point is, being owned by God is not a constraint. It's a privilege. Under his guidance, we find not just safety and hope, but true freedom. We should embrace and not resist the opportunity to be under his ownership. So let's be clear. If you've been bought with a great price, you are not your own. And if you are not your own, then you don't have the final say over your body. This is the third point. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not just poetic language or metaphor. It's a reality that has far-reaching implications for how we live our lives. Remember, where Paul is writing, he's dealing with these, with these sexual immorality issues that have been influenced by the 
prevailing culture at the time. And he's trying to dismantle this notion that, like I said earlier, that their bodies are somehow separate from their spiritual selves. And while I don't think that we have like a dualistic ideology, not that I'm qualified to speak on such things, um, I do think that there's a breakdown between our understanding of our bodies and our souls and the role that our bodies play in God's call and direction on our life and his expectations for what we do with these vessels that he has given to us. The entire story arc of the Bible is is a story of God's relentless pursuit of being in relationship with us. Entire, entire Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We've heard that before. The entire thing. Creation, God's desire to be with us. Fall, our rejection of that. Our desire to, to lead ourselves back to the autonomy and the independence. His redeeming that because we are sheep walking around without a shepherd and his restoration of his original design. In our relentless quest for independence, we naturally reject this. But from the beginning, he has desired to be in relationship with us. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear that his desire is for your relationship with him, my relationship with him, to be the supreme relationship in all of your life. Again, something that I think gets out of whack. His desire is for our relationship with him to be the supreme relationship in all of our life. So it's God, and then depending on who you are, spouse, kids, Right? And then all of those relationships under that hierarchy are based on that relationship. And the moment that this relationship gets set down in this seat and this relationship gets put in this seat, it all starts to fall apart. It only works. It only works. It only works when he is in the top seat and all other relationships fall under that. And that is what he has wanted from the beginning. Like this was C.S. Lewis's thing, I think, right? Like when he, before he was a believer, he was kind of turned off by the fact that God was so needy for our worship. But he figured out later on that it wasn't God's neediness for that. It's our neediness for that. And God knows what we need. And he knows that what is the best thing for us is for us to be in right relationship with him. Him as the primary relationship so that we can learn from him and worship him. And that that is what will fulfill us. And so he wants that for us because we we need that. So remember we're talking about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sorry. All the way back to creation. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. God comes walking in the evening. 
looking for Adam and Eve, right? He, he created a garden specifically so that he could physically be present with them. And he would, that's, to me, it's one of the most beautiful, it's like the most beautiful imagery in all of the Bible. And it's the saddest. Like, the God of the universe, the creator who has just made this thing, and, and, and Adam and Eve, and, you know, and he comes to talk to them, to be in relationship with them, and he can't find them because they're hiding. They're hiding because they wanted to be free. They wanted to be independent. They didn't want what he wanted. And so, there's a, there's a thousand examples, but I'll jump to the tabernacle. So Because he, he tells them, even in Genesis 3, I, I'm going to fix it. Right? Uh, what is it? Um, when he's talking about the offspring, offspring um, he will bruise your head and he will bruise your heel. Right? Talking about Satan will, will, will bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush the head of Satan. So even immediately after the fall, God has a plan. Fast forward to the exodus out of, out of Egypt, and what does he do? He builds a tabernacle. And why does he build a tabernacle? Because he wants to be with them. He says it, Exodus 25, so that I can dwell with my people. And you should read these passages, Exodus 25 and surrounding passages, because it's amazing. The detail that he goes into for what the tabernacle should look like. He says that his house where he will reside, he speaks every detail of it. And it's amazing. Gold and silver and fine linens and acacia wood, down to the finest detail. And one of the things that I love is he he. He, he blesses these master craftsmen with the ability to work all of these different mediums to create this tabernacle. The point is, is that he puts a lot of care into where he's going to reside. Where he's going to live is important. Fast forward to the temple of Solomon. I think it's like a thousand years later. Same thing. It took seven years to build. Did you know, I read this this week, that when Solomon had the temple built, you know, it was these enormous stones that had to be hewn in the quarry, and that he made a decree that they had to prepare the stones at the quarry, meaning hammer and chisel, measure, cut, shape, form, to fit perfectly, and these are big stones, like as big as the balcony, in a single stone. Like, enormous. They had to do it at the quarry because there was to be no hammering or construction noise on the site of the building of the temple. It's just a cool fact. It's also a demonstration of how set apart the house of God is, his dwelling place is, and he puts all the same care into that. It took seven years to build that temple. As an aside, it took 14 years to build Solomon's own house, but um, that's the statement of our desire for independence and autonomy once again. So, 
the temple, all of the, all of the, uh, the care. Fast forward to Jesus. Remember, a relentless pursuit of relationship with us. Fast forward all the way to Jesus. Jesus, God himself comes down to live among his people. And we kill him. And so he promises the Holy Spirit. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Praise God. This is a staggering promise. The creator of the universe desires to make his home not with us, not to dwell among us, but within us. Remember all the care that was put into the, the tent in the desert? Can you imagine how much more care has been put into your construction? That he would come to dwell in So what does this mean for us? It means that we have a responsibility to maintain those temples. To keep them pure and undefiled. Just as you wouldn't desecrate a physical temple with graffiti, you shouldn't desecrate your body. This goes far beyond, though it does not go, it does not skip over it avoiding sexual immorality and substance abuse of all kinds, it, intends, it extends to how we eat and sleep and work and rest. This is life-altering truth. Every action that we take should be in alignment with the fact that we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if all of this is true, then to mistreat our bodies is not just an offense against ourselves, which it is, but it is an offense against the one who paid the price to purchase it. It's akin to buying a priceless piece of art and then throwing darts at it. You wouldn't do it. It's foolish and disrespectful. But this flies in the face of a basic cultural value. We've heard it 10,000 times. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. That is the cry of generations. And we want it to be true. They want it to be true. They want to believe that it's their body and it is their choice. Whether it's abortion, whether it is sexuality, whether it is gender confusion, our culture holds this with a vehement passion. My body, my choice. The Bible tells us whether we like it or not. This is not true. It is not your body. And it is not your choice. So this is going to be, this is hard, I know. Again, it's just like the Corinthians. We're dealing with this overwhelmingly powerful cultural message and these desires that we have then we're faced with this truth that's too great to ignore. And so I have to say this. But you, you cannot be a Christian. I know I'm not supposed to say this. You cannot be a Christian and hold this view. My body, my choice. 
Okay? Now, I want to clarify what I just said. I am not saying that you cannot wrestle with that. I'm not saying that you can't struggle with that reality, with this, with this truth. I'm struggling all week long. Of course you can struggle with it. You need to struggle with it. Because you need to know where you stand on it. Because it's not going away. In fact, it's going to magnify. It's going to encroach more and more and more into your life and into the lives of your children. And it's going to become normative so that when kids who are five today will have no idea, if not but for God's word, that that message is not true. And if we do not pass it along, they will not know, and you know that they are passing it along to your children. My body, my choice, my body, my choice. You do what's right for you. You do you. The Bible says these two things are in conflict. And so what I'm saying is it's okay to wrestle. 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 Wrestle hard. Talk to your friends. Talk to your pastors. Talk to your parents. Don't be afraid. It's okay to wrestle. But you're going to have to make a decision. You have to take a stand on what you believe about this fundamental fundamental issue. You are not your own. You've been bought with a great price. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so glorify God with it. This is the paradigm that Paul paradigm shift that Paul is calling for and this is where it really starts to hit home for some of us our bodies are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit this is not a minor detail it's central to your identity as a follower of Christ and it shapes how you interact with the world how you care for yourself and ultimately how you glorify God fourth point we're moving to conclusion so fourth point glorify God with your body aren't you glad I skipped the illustration as we move to close we've established that we were bought at great price that we are not our own that our bodies are the temples of the holy spirit what does this mean for us practically it means that we have a responsibility this is the weird part like so much of this is it's this battle of of sovereignty and free will isn't it like and this is an age-old battle of course Wait a second. If all of these things are true, then do I even have any choice in the matter? Because it seems like I'm saying that no. But that's not true. It's, it's clearly not true. You absolutely have choice. I will say this to you. No one is forcing you to have faith. You can reject it. You can exchange your blood for Christ's blood. You can say no. I thought about that this week too. I grew up in church. I'm not sure I've ever really had that thought. <clears throat> so, 
let's acknowledge the obvious. We have no right to use what is not our own. It's like, like I borrowed Brian Miller's truck. Do you borrow people's stuff that makes you super nervous? It should, <laughs> right? Because it's not yours. And I drove it six hours to take my daughter to college. And you can bet I drove it with great care. You'd be glad to know, Brian. I didn't speed. I didn't. No. Keep going around potholes. Super careful. In my car, I just like try and hit all the potholes. You know, so that's the, that's the difference. Seriously. You don't have a right to use what is not your own. It's disrespectful, and it's a violation of trust. And so in the same way, if these, remember, if this, then that. If these other things are true, then this has implications for what we do with this. There's this weird story in 2 Kings 6. It's just this little, like, four or five verses. You may have read it before, where the prophet Elisha and the sons of the prophets are building this place to dwell by the Jordan River. And so they get Elisha to go, and they're going to cut down these logs and build these dwelling places. And one of them's cutting down a tree with an axe. And he hits the, swings the axe, and the axe head flies off, and it goes in a river. Here's how, it, here's how it reads in Scripture. It's Exodus, or, um, um, 2 Kings 6, 4 through 5. So he went with them, Elisha, and they went and came to the Jordan. They cut down the trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. <laughs> right? When it's somebody else's, it matters more. By the way, Elisha does a miracle and makes the iron axe head float and they get it out of the water. But. And so it is with our bodies. They are not our own. They are his and their use is for his glory. So here's, here's some practicality as, as I really am I'm closing here. Imagine the opportunity that we as believers have to witness to a lost and dying world just through the simple act of how we care for ourselves and how we use ourselves to care for creation. I think this is what this is what this means. Glorify God with your bodies. Have you ever wondered why Christians are so watched by the world? But you know that they are, right? There's nothing that the world loves to see more than a Christian fall flat on their face. I think it's fair. And they have some right, in some ways, they have every right to expect more from us. We make some pretty big claims. We claim to be the children of God. So valuable. This whole sermon... <laughs> It's about how valuable we are. So valuable that God sent his son and gave his life to purchase us. We believe that and we tell the world that. We claim that we have been forgiven, that we are righteous, that we will live forever. And everybody who's like us will get to live forever and everybody who's not like us will get to suffer forever. 
And so, yeah, they watch us. And they want to see what is different about us. It's like children of the king. Okay? So, um, <laughs> uh, William and Kate, right? The public's fascination with, uh, what are they now? They're going to, as you can see, I'm super fascinated. Um, like Duchess and, what are they, Mark? Mark knows. I know he follows the royal family. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Every time I go to the grocery store, huh? Prince and princess. That should be easy, right? <laughs> That's fair. All right. All right. Anyway, I'm almost done. If somebody took me to the fair today, and we're walking around the fair, of course, you've got to go see the livestock. I'm looking at the cows, and all the cows look the same to me. But somebody said, that's Prince William's cow. I would be intrigued. I would be more intrigued by that cow than all the other cows. It's natural. I would watch it, and I would probably ignore all of the other cows. Because there is something different about one who belongs to the king. It may seem that we do not have any free will if you take portions of this, of this sermon. But clearly we do because how we act and what we do is in our control. If we didn't have free will, we wouldn't need all of this guidance. When we were praying this morning, Adiola, after youth, Adiola prayed, and I caught my ear that she said, as we go out into the world, that we would be salt and light. How do we do that? Well, the way you steward your bodies. Do we look any different? Whatever, look, take a look how you want. Any different than the rest of the world? Do we hold to a higher standard of character than the rest of the world? Like if I'm a child of the king and I have been bought at great price, some measure of dignity that comes with that, that should look different. How do we spend our time? How do you use what God has given you to care for the world around you? How do you spend your time? Service, loving others, and finally, worship. Gathering together as the, as the body of Christ. So, if you claim the name of Jesus, I'll say that later. If you claim the name of Jesus, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you claim the name of Jesus, remember, you don't have to. I hope you will. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what you believe when you came in, I hope that God uses these broken words to cause you to reflect on these questions and to wrestle with them and that in his grace he will lead you to a firm answer. If you claim the name of Jesus, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You've been bought a great price. And so glorify God with your bodies. One of the ways that we do that each week here at Antioch is with 
communion. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Whenever you eat it together, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he passed it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Antioch, this is the first time since this sermon that we will have an opportunity to glorify God with our bodies. And I pray that you will take this anew today. If you're a guest with us this morning and you have claimed the name of Christ, this invitation is open to you. Come and join us. We will eat together. And if you've not, then we ask that you not partake in this. But I pray that you'll wrestle with this question just as we all are. There'll be pastors in the back. I'll be back there. I'm glad to talk with anyone who has questions. We'll just form two lines and come down. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, praise you, love you, worship you. Lord, we are inexpressibly grateful to you for your word that transcends time and culture and personality and politics and speaks to us with such clarity today just as it did 2,000 years ago. I thank you for Paul, for the conviction of his faith that you placed in him and for the articulation with which he shared things. And God, that you have allowed us to be here week after week after week together, sitting under your word, eating this bread. God, I pray that you would use it to transform our minds and our bodies. That we would live in a new paradigm knowing that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, I do pray for each one of us in our own ways, in our own unique ways as we leave today, that we would would seek in the way that only each of us can to glorify you with these bodies that you have given us. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.